Let us, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. From the letter to the Hebrews, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews this morning enjoins us to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. He does not enjoin us to a rather broad way of worship that is comfortable or worse, relaxed and laid back or California style. No, he calls us to reverence and awe, to worship that is acceptable to God. I wonder if I were to ask you this morning, and maybe you can think about it a little bit, exactly what is reverent and awe-filled worship? What is worship that is acceptable to God? You might struggle to find an answer. If I were to ask you to answer the question, what kind of worship does God demand, you might have a bit of trouble there could be several possible answers as to why this is. Perhaps it is that we have dumbed down the definitions of such words. For instance, we use the word awesome so much today that it has become essentially meaningless, almost a comma in how we speak. Not meaning merely, maybe simply meaning merely good. Or that reverence is simply a matter of refraining from using certain words in good company. Or that worship that is acceptable is a bit like whether or not a meal at our favorite restaurant is acceptable. Are we willing to send it back at the risk of seeming ungrateful or unkind? Often, my wife and I joke about, they'll spit in our food if we complain. Don't complain. Surely God is not so rigid as to be constantly assessing whether or not our worship is up to snuff, is he? And yet Jesus says to us this morning, drive to enter by the narrow door. Alternatively, our lack of an answer could be caused by our utter disenchantment in the modern age, where ancient people lived in a world filled with angels and demons and all kinds of things in invisible realms, the presence of God permeating the creation in which we human beings participated in a dramatic liturgy, which is constant and not occasional. Interaction between God and His people was the norm. We have now in so many ways come to believe that God is much more like a disinterested third party, or worse, like a puppy who comes when we call. Or it could be that Christian worship has become an expression of hyper-rationalism, much more like a classroom than an encounter with the divine. We have seats much like an auditorium, where the emphasis is upon hearing and not doing, not participating with awe and reverence. Often we take this rationalism to the point where we think that children have no place with us in the church's worship because why? They cannot understand it. They lack the reason to do so. It could also be that Christian worship has become something much more like a performance 
in which professionals provide the music and professionals provide the preaching, in which worship is much more of a production aimed at being friendly to those who might just believe if they had had less of a negative opinion toward the Christian exercise of worship. It could also be that Christian worship has become merely pedestrian, that we have tried so hard to have a form of worship that everyone can agree upon that we are now left with a rather soulless and boring lowest common denominator. It could be any one of those things, perhaps even all of those things. But it stands that Scripture speaks of worship that is acceptable to God. Worship originating not in the minds of human beings, especially not in what we want, in what makes us feel good, or what we think is reverent and awesome or acceptable, but according to God Himself. This this is illustrated in the text from Hebrews by a very compelling biblical image. That image comes from the 10th chapter of Leviticus. When was the last time you read Leviticus? Probably time to read it again. Leviticus spends nine chapters and several more beyond that with God detailing exactly how worship is to be conducted inside the tabernacle, the tent in which Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons conducted worship, in which Moses met with the Lord, that precursor to the temple on Mount Mount Zion, of which the letter to the Hebrews has insisted that we have come. The reference is not to Mount Sinai, on which the law is given, but to the tabernacle. And it is there at the end of the ninth chapter that Moses and Aaron go into the tabernacle to speak with God. And we read that when they come out, they bring with them blessing. And they bless the people who are gathered around the tent. And in that moment, fire comes down from the Lord. We think it's from the Ark of the Covenant. It's not entirely sure. And consumes all the flesh on the altar. I say that because you should read Leviticus again with some fresh eyes. It's exciting. And in the 10th chapter of that book, we read this. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, or like a thurible, full of fiery incense. They put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So what is being said here is that they think, you know what would be a good, deal, a good idea, Nadab? And Nabihu says, what, Nadab? Let's fire up some incense and march around the altar. And so they do. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Listen to that again. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And we read that Aaron simply held his peace. Now we are always tempted to think something along the following lines. Oh, how thankful we are that God has changed his tune, that he no longer does horrible things like that, 
that He is so much more merciful and that He has changed that and that He no longer consumes unruly thoroughfares who get a little excited. Aren't you glad of that? We lose one of the core convictions of creedal faith that the God who revealed Himself to Israel is the same God who consumed those two unruly priests. That that is the same God who reveals Himself in Christ, crucified, dead, buried, risen, and ascended. He is that same God who says, I will be sanctified, I will be glorified. Now yes, His blood speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel who calls out for vengeance upon His brother, whose blood cries out from the ground. Yes, Jesus' blood is more gracious than that but He is still completely and utterly holy, still completely jealous for our worship and adoration, and still utterly and completely the consuming fire that He ever was. So the writer makes this appeal to the reader to worship God with awe and reverence, but these words are rarely if ever translated well. Awe and reverence could alternatively be translated as fear and caution. The writer is pleading with his readers to take seriously the call to worship in holy fear and in caution of holy things. He insists that Christian worship be not the people of God gathered around Mount Sinai to hear the word of the Lord, trembling with the fear of death, unable to touch even the mountain, but the worship of God in His holy temple where He is. Bidden to come up and worship, asked in the Psalms, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Only the one with clean hands and a pure heart. But they are bidden to come to worship without the slightest presumption, without thinking themselves good enough, but being careful to come in penitence and fear. Oh, that this would be once again our joy and privilege as Christians to with holy fear and true awe to come into humble places such as this, believing not that it is just some stripped-down worship space, but that it becomes in truth and wonder the house of the Lord. For the things of earth are not only holy because of some innate character, they can be shaken they can be disrupted. They are rather made holy by the presence of the living God. This simple building becomes this very day a place unfathomably more holy and more filled with the presence of God than the tabernacle or the temple ever was. It becomes thick with angels, saturated with the saints. If you and I could only be granted the eyes to see, to look up and see we would fall on our faces, we would wail and weep in both fear and joy, reverence and awe, filled with that awe and filled with gladness. The truth which the church proclaims in her worship is that the God who is holy and awesome, who is unlike, completely unlike us, and yet creates us in His image, took on human flesh, dwelling among us, and not only that, but He is crucified. At the heart of Christian worship is Christ, who is the victim and the priest, the sacrifice and the one who does the sacrificing. 
We worship, yes, by the Holy Spirit, the fire of divine love who burns up all that is not holy, who makes and gives us life, whom we worship and adore. We worship not the God who is remote and who comes only when called upon, but the God who has taken it upon himself to visit us who has been both exalted and disgraced at the same time, who for us was crucified and for us has risen. We worship the God who feeds us from his table and who offers us the body and blood of his incarnate Son, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. This is what the writer means by offering acceptable worship with reverence and awe to the God who is a consuming fire. He means that we must set ourselves aside. That we must set aside the roots of bitterness, any seeking after personal gain, that we must come to the foot of the cross, that we may come seeking only the cleansing fire of God, approaching Him in total thankfulness and praise. Many people have come to expect that Christian worship will be easy and painless. That it will be easy to understand and not last too long. That it will not shake us to our core. In fact, it is quite the opposite. Real worship is painful. The 15th century mystic Teresa of Avila once wrote, of the climax of her mystical experiences, which are depicted in art in a statue which is in St. Peter's in Rome. She talks about being touched with the fiery sphere of divine love. It was an experience she found terribly painful, but so joyful that she wanted the pain. (laughs) She writes this, I saw in his hand, in God's hand, a long sphere of gold, And at the iron's point, there seemed to be a little fire. He appeared to me to be thrusting it at times into my heart and to pierce my very entrails. When he drew it out, it seemed to draw them out also and to leave me all on fire with a great love of God. The pain was so great that it made me moan, and yet so surpassing was the sweetness of this excessive pain that I could not wish to be rid of it. The soul, she says, is now satisfied with nothing less than God. That's what I want. I hope that's what you want, is to be satisfied with nothing less than God. To have our selfishness, to have our desires, to have all those misplaced things burnt up shaken out. And so we pray, and I hope you'll join me in this, to pray a prayer that our bishop taught recently, that the fire of God, the Holy Spirit, would fill us with this perfect reverence and acceptable worship, leaving us satisfied with nothing less than God. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come as the wind and blow. Come as the fire and burn. Convict, convert, and consecrate us. 
set our hearts on fire with a love for Jesus and then use us as you will for our great good and your great glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.